Welcome everybody to another episode of Need Some Introduction. In today's episode, this is my instant reaction to the season finale of The Last of Us, this first season of the show, an episode called Look for the Light. This is an upsetting season finale, and we'll get into the breakdown of it very soon. As I mentioned, this is an instant reaction. Just finished watching the show just moments ago. And to round out the episode, this is also the night of the Academy Awards. I do wonder, there's actually been speculation online as to what show is going to get the highest viewership tonight. The Academy Awards did have a bounce back in audience viewership last year after a horrible previous year, the pandemic year. And as I'm recording this, they have already given away two awards, two of the big awards, the Best Supporting Actor and Best Supporting Actress, as well as Best Animated Film. And I will be giving you my reactions to the award winners at the end of this episode. Most of the main awards have not even been given away as I'm recording this, but they will be by the time I finish editing it. <laughs> and I will be giving you my reactions there as well. So here's the breakdown of this ninth and final episode of The Last of Us. Today's episode, Look for the Light. Once again, just like last week, directed by Ali Abbasi, very talented young director who directed the twisted, dark Academy Award-nominated fairy tale film Border from 2018 and this past year's 2022's Holy Spider, based on a true-life serial killer who killed sex workers in Iran. And that film also winning many awards and was actually in competition for the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. Despite my issues with last week's episode, he definitely brought suspense to all of those dark moments towards the end of the episode. This week's episode, Look for the Light, once again, referencing the Fireflies, right in the title, just like the first episode, these bookends to the season. This episode opens in a cold open flashback, an extremely pregnant woman chased through the woods. We can hear one of the infected following her, makes her way to her safe house, a farm, enters the house expecting for someone to be there. This is somewhat reminiscent of a quiet place, but the payoff happens much more quickly. The infected tracks her down to a room upstairs. She is able to kill the attacker off as she gives birth to this baby. And as we suspect as viewers, this is Ellie's origin story and presumably where her immunity comes from. Her mom was infected as she was giving birth to Ellie and she has picked up some immunity in vitro, or just as she was birthed. This is going to be very hard to even understand where this immunity came from, much less to reverse engineer it among other survivors as well. This flashback continues, and we realize that Anna was not only a firefly, but good friends with Marlene. She hands off Ellie, gives her the knife that she still carries to this day, tells her to find someone to take care of her and make sure she gets the knife as well, and asks Marlene to kill her before she leaves. At first, she relents but then finally does. With that, we jump back to the present tense. In 2023, Ellie and Joel at some period of time have worked their way all the way to Utah, hundreds of miles from their last location, presumably mostly on foot. The seasons have changed again, I believe. Joel scores some beefaroni, ransacking the abandoned cars, and Boggle. Ellie still is in the doldrums. They must have been traveling by car. I can't imagine she's still in this state experiencing this PTSD potentially months after the last experience. Maybe it'll become clearer later in the episode. Joel does mention, I saw a smashed up guitar 
I couldn't play that guitar, but maybe I should try to look for one and maybe I'll play something. Maybe I'll even teach you. They start to explore the downtown, find a building. And with some assistance, Joel boosts Ellie up. She's very distracted here and he's very concerned. And then we have this really beautiful sequence where Ellie starts to explore this overgrown part of the building. And there's a giraffe grazing by one of the openings in the wall. Joel comes over and helps her feed it. And she seems to come out of her depression momentarily. And he seems happy for it. She keeps running ahead and he's struggling to keep up. Makes it to the roof, chasing after this giraffe that has taken off. Sees this entire flock, pod, what do they call these giraffe groups? Wandering off together. I just looked it up. It's a herd. Of course it's a herd. And Joel has this earnest conversation with her, telling her, we've come a long way. I don't know if there's anything dangerous out there, but there usually is. We don't have to do this. We don't have to do this. I just, I want you to know that. What do you mean? What else are we supposed to do? Nothing. We just go back to Tommy's. We forget about the whole damn thing. Everything I've done. It can't be for nothing. I know you mean well. I know you want to protect me. You have. And when we're done, we'll go wherever you want. But there's no halfway with this. We finish what we started. Finish what we started. Which, by the way, Joel, she's going to go all the way back to Wyoming? <laughs> How long is that going to take? I think it's more dangerous to go back to Wyoming than to see what's available here in Salt Lake City. As they continue to explore the city, they encounter an abandoned army triage center Ellie asks if this was Fedra, and Joel says, no, this was before Fedra. In the immediate aftermath of the outbreak, there were these medical camps set up all over the city, and he had been in one because of that shot that he mentioned earlier. Someone shot and missed. And this is when he tells Ellie the whole backstory that the man who shot and missed him was, was Joel himself. He had lost all hope, and just when he pulled the trigger, for some reason, he just still doesn't understand, he flinched. Sarah died. And I couldn't see the point anymore. Simple as that. And I wasn't scared either. I was ready. I couldn't have been more ready. Went to pull the trigger, I, I flinched. Still don't know why. Anyway, the reason I'm telling you all this I is- I know why you're telling me all this. So time heals all wounds, I guess. It wasn't time that did it. I'm glad that that didn't work out. Me too. It was in time that healed those wounds. It was his relationship with Ellie. At this point, a few surprising things happen here in the plot of the show, at least for me, not having played the game. And I do need to track down to see if there are disparities here between the game and the show at this point. Ellie and Joel distracted by more puns, some good ones here too, by the way, wandering the streets of Salt Lake City. We see in the background some of these fireflies sneaking up on them. A flash grenade knocks them down, and Joel gets a butt of the rifle to the head. When he wakes up, he's in the custody of the fireflies in this hospital they've been trying to track down. Marlene is impressed. She barely survived this trek across the country. How did they do it? Joel says it was all Ellie. She fought so hard to get here. He wants to see her. Marlene tells him it's not possible. She's being prepped for surgery. They suspect that Ellie has a certain kind of cordyceps that compete and destroy these other virulent cordyceps. And if they can harvest it, they can grow it and infect other people with it as well, making them immune to this thing potentially as well. 
But Joel knows cordyceps grow inside the brain. And Marlene says, yes, the surgery will lead to Ellie's death. Joel's not okay with this. And Marlene, by the way, tells him that Ellie's being prepped for surgery and has no idea that this is what's going to happen. Now, at this point, the whole show is really asking us to question the morality of all these different characters. And maybe that's what the whole point of the show has been up until this point. But if I'm going to play moral police here, if they had confidence that Ellie would have accepted this fate, they should have just told her. And honestly, if I was in Ellie's shoes, I probably would say yes, as would she, I believe. But they don't. They told her something else. She's not calm or panicked at all. And she's prepped for surgery right now. Joel is not okay with this, obviously. Marlene says to drop him off at the side of the highway. And if he fights back at all, kill him. And they also give him Ellie's switchblade, which of course has traveled with her literally since her birth. So that symbolically, that knife being out of her hands means that she is dead. As Joel is stepping out of the building, he notices the floor, notes the floor where the pediatric surgery center is, starts walking down the stairs, intentionally closing the gap between him and the gunman behind him. And he starts to fight, of course, as we would expect. And there is a protracted sequence where he basically kills everybody in that hospital building, including the surgeon, once he gets to the pediatric OR, the surgeon who's about to perform the surgery on Ellie. He makes it out to the garage. You see him in a moment in the elevator, looking at Ellie and thinking about what he could potentially be doing, the consequences of his actions right here. And Pedro Pascal doing a great job of conveying this just in his facial expressions. He heads out to the garage and Marlene is there by herself. Why aren't there more soldiers with her? Why didn't she <laughs> send them all to the garage area rather than letting them all get killed on all those other floors? The logistics of this are questionable, but it did all happen very quickly. And she has a very honest conversation with him. No matter how hard you try, no matter how many people you kill, she's going to grow up, Joel. And then you'll die, or she'll leave. Then what? How long till she's torn apart by infected or murdered by raiders? Because she lives in a broken world that you could have saved. Maybe. But it isn't for you to decide. Or you. So what would she decide, huh? Because I think she'd want to do what's right. And you know it. Which, of course, is the crux of this whole entire situation. Can you not do the selfish thing for the sake of humanity? And Joel, at this point, really can't. Although everybody is morally compromised here, of course. Next we see we're in the car with Ellie and Joel. He gives her a version of what happened. She's just waking up. He tells her, there's dozens of people like you. They're not going to try to make a cure anymore. They're not looking for a cure anymore. But she's onto him and asks, where are my clothes? And is Marlene okay? He just says, I'm sorry. And she turns her back on him. Unspoken here, of course, she knows exactly what happened. It wasn't raiders that came and killed everybody in the hospital. And we flash back once again to the moment before Joel has shot Marlene. She's still alive, however. And as he's putting Ellie into the car, Marlene begs Joel to let her live, but he coldly says, you would just come after her and shoots her in the head. Meanwhile, Joel and Ellie headed back to Wyoming to reunite with his brother in the one sanctuary they found so far in this season. The car breaks down about a five-hour hike away from the Jackson, Wyoming compound. He even tells Ellie, remember that? It's about a five-mile hike before as well on their first trip here. He starts telling her about Sarah. She didn't really like to hike, but she did like to scamper up rocks and starts to compare and contrast Ellie versus Sarah. It's a little disturbing. I mean, obviously, Joel has been through a lot of things, but his daughter died decades ago and would have been a full-grown woman, but is still, in his mind, the teenage girl that died in his arms decades before. 
Ellie seems wary of these comparisons and wary of the way he interacts with her at this point. She finally tells him the story of the first person she killed. She had to kill Riley once she turned, and she can't deal with the consequences of her actions anymore. She wants Joel to promise her that he told her the truth about what happened back at the hospital with the fireflies. Without hesitation, Joel says he promises, and she says, okay. And that's where the season ends. Back in Kansas City, you asked me about the first time I killed someone. When I got bit in the mall, I, I wasn't on my own. My best friend was there, and she got bit too. We didn't know what to do, and she says, we can just wait it out, be all poetic, and just lose our minds together. And then she did. Her name was Riley, and she was the first to die. And then it was Tess, and then Sam. That's not on you. I know. It Look, sometimes things don't work out the way we hope. You can feel like, like you've come to an end, and you don't know what to do next. But if you just keep going, you find something new to fight for. And maybe that's not what Swear you want. Swear to me. Swear to me that everything you said about the fireflies is true. I swear. Okay. There are many different philosophical mappings you can put over this show. One is the idea of altruism. Doing good acts that benefit others is, in that philosophical paradigm, obviously a noble act. And in that regard, Joel is not a noble actor. Another philosophical framework could be utilitarianism, the concept there being that the correct act is the one that provides the most benefit to the largest population of people. So maximizing good outcomes with your actions. Once again, Joel has repeatedly not behaved in this way. And there's also a concept of self-defense. So morally, harming someone else is considered a bad act always, unless it is in the defense of another. So injuring someone in the defense of yourself or of another can be considered a moral act, but not when, not when there is a severe imbalance in the lives taken. And here in this scenario, we have all these soldiers, potentially with families, with loved ones, with spouses who are being killed in the moment by Joel, not even to speak of the fact of the possibility of this curing this fungal parasite, potentially giving humanity itself a way forward, all to save this one girl. But in the end, as Marlene points out herself, Ellie very well may have chosen, almost certainly would have chosen, to sacrifice herself for the greater good. And he knows it. These are selfish acts. And I'd say that is maybe the most interesting thing we've seen in the course of this show. We assume that we are seeing a hero's journey, that we're seeing an arc to Joel, that Joel has softened. He has re-embraced life and its possibilities because of this relationship with this girl. And what actually we've seen is that he continues to be the person he was. He has not changed. And in the same way that in the past, he convinced his brother that killing others is okay. It's okay, even if we just suspect that they might injure us because we need to protect ourselves and protect our own. And he did the same thing with Tess. He did the same thing with everybody. And that's one more shocking thing to just point out that in some ways we have been following, our hero has actually been the villain of the piece, which is maybe the most interesting aspect of this whole entire show and this story in general, since it was a video game first. He also is lying to Ellie. Ellie would have made the sacrifice and he is lying to her, not only, maybe at first, so that she doesn't carry this burden on her back, but it's not just that. In those final moments of this episode, he is lying to her yet again 
because he simply doesn't want to lose her. He is priority is always with himself. Now, will this haunt him in the future? The acts here at the end of this episode make him almost completely irredeemable. But is there a chance that he can feel some guilt for what he's done, continue to see if they can find a way to harness this special immunity that Ellie has without potentially killing her? I do hope that there's some glimmer of hope in that next season. He does have a moral code. He's on this journey, not being the same brutish, self-interested actor that he was in the past because he promised Tess that he would go on this journey. And honestly, he was also headed towards his brother. But being reconnected to this life force has only doubled down his this self-centered and honestly nihilistic perspective that he has because I bet you, first of all, that before Ellie was in this picture, that if he had died on this trip out there, he really had nothing to live for. So he was just thinking, maybe I see my brother again, and if I die, who cares? I honestly think that would probably be his perspective. And if on the other hand, he somehow was immune and needed to sacrifice himself for the greater good, he would have said yes, because he could care less, to be totally honest. But now all of a sudden he cares to the detriment of everybody else on earth. The only glimmer of hope in all of this is that if this is a way to create a person who may be immune to this virus, then it's not impossible that there aren't other women who were pregnant at the same time and had children who may have carried this immunity as well. I mean, this happened to billions of people on earth. Some of them must have been pregnant at that moment. And where the show goes from, from this point on, I do not know. I honestly can't imagine what the trajectory of next season could be. Because honestly, what else is it going to be? They're just going to be holed up in Wyoming. Some raiders show up. Things get ugly. They fight. I mean, it's just like a season of The Walking Dead at that point. And once again, to my negative take on it, making analogy to a show that I never really liked that much anyway, especially after the first couple of seasons. So that all remains to be seen. And I don't really feel that the show has set up that next season. And maybe it doesn't need to. Maybe the video games have already done that work. Or maybe they wanted to leave it in a way where theoretically, if the show wasn't popular, they could have just left it there. And in a way, that would be the arc. The arc would be for us to question the morality of what his decisions are. Would we have made the same choices if that was our child, if that was a loved one of ours? Obviously, as bystanders, we would have wanted to have humanity saved. But of course, we did not have a loved one's life on the line. As far as the structure of the show, I have a lot of nits to pick with just the way that this is very video gamey. Somehow Joel could just kill all these people. These guys have been able to survive this plague as well. They should have strong survival skills. And somehow Joel always has the upper hand, upper hand on them. And I don't buy that. I just don't believe that 25 mercenaries that have had the same life experiences that Joel has are somehow all collectively. He can maybe get past one or two of them, but he can get past all of them. Can he, Basically, anybody who knows that Ellie has this immunity is somehow eradicated and no one else knows about this uh, arrival of Ellie. I mean, based on the maps we saw, it's not just 10 or 15 people that are in this hospital. There are many, many other fireflies. And maybe that is the comeuppance that is coming to Joel next season. Possibly. I don't know. We never got to hear Pedro Pascal sing or play the guitar. They teased that multiple times and never paid it off. I guess that might be a, an Easter egg for the uh, the video game as well. So I'm not sure how that played out or why that was in there other than as an Easter egg. Any other kind of interesting thing here, although maybe very intentional and very reminiscent of The Walking Dead yet again, is that these infected are relatively sparse throughout. We saw them 
in flashback in episode one, we saw them in Boston, dormant or semi-dormant, as Tess and Joel and Ellie are traversing the city. And of course, Tess gets bit. We see them in episode five, that really memorable, shocking, hellish emergence from the ground where hundreds of them seem to be swarming, a vision of the hell that must have been on Earth for a period of time. And then other than one in flashback or one in a flashback here or there, we rarely see them in the 2023 world. So it's all very strange that this is the, that they've used these infected so sparingly because of course, in the end, human nature is the real villain, as is always the case with these zombie shows. And maybe once again, that is my fundamental criticism. I'm not sure I got so much more out of this show that I would have gotten out of a season of The Walking Dead, for example. This easily could have been a season of The Walking Dead, other than the mechanism of infection obviously being very unique here. If you've all seen the featurette that came on after, it's pretty clear what the intentions of this whole show are. It's this metaphor for parenting and how we obviously treasure our children more than we treasure anybody else, our family, our friends. And Joel is just the most extreme example of it. And as they mentioned, two very key points here, of course, is that Joel is making a very, very selfish decision and that Joel has made selfish decisions the whole entire time throughout the show. And theoretically, this would be the easiest choice he would make not to choose one person over another, but to choose the faith of humanity or Ellie. And he chooses to remove any hope for humanity by taking the actions that he does take. And of course, more troubling perhaps is the fact that Ellie alluded to earlier in the episode saying that when there is no halfway on this, even though she's saying, I will follow with you in the future, she knows that there's a very, very good chance that she's not going to survive whatever procedure would be necessary to potentially find a cure. And she says, I'm willing to go all the way. I do not want to turn back. And I don't want to go halfway either. I don't want this to be half measure. I want the full measure. So as I mentioned earlier, even though Marlene should have been more honest with her, I think deep down inside, Ellie always knows that this is going to be a one-way trip and maybe is okay with that. I mean, when you consider the world that she has to live in, the idea that she can save humanity by sacrificing herself, I think she would be more than happy to make that choice. And I think this is crystallized once again in that featurette when you see Bella Ramsey explicitly say that, what she considered her purpose in life has been taken away from her by the very person that she loves the most. And that's a betrayal. And once again, that's a metaphor, being bound to potentially an abusive parent, a certain kind of abuse, where to shelter and protect that child, they're willing to sacrifice everything else, including the trust they have with that person, driven by that fear of losing them. So this is very interesting thematically. I have to say that the show for me in general wasn't that satisfying. I take the point that the show is making. It's very well made. Petra Pascal, once again, giving doing excellent work, as is Bella Ramsey, as is everybody in the cast here. Interesting, by the way, that the actress that plays Ellie's mother here, Anna, played Ellie in the video game. So you see this connection. We have the two Ellies on screen simultaneously, at least the baby version of this Ellie. And once again, not having played the games, the question to me having watched this show, is how do they even make a season two? Are we going to be in Jackson, Wyoming? Is she going to discover the fact that he betrayed her? Will she become vindictive? Will she meet up with Fireflies? And will she be at odds with Joel in trying to go out on this mission? I don't know. I honestly can't imagine (laughs) what the plot of next season would be, given where we are in the show at this moment. So I think 
the initial audience reaction from what I'm seeing on the internet is very positive, although I'm recording this immediately after seeing the show, so I've only barely seen the feedback. And I assume this is the ending from the video game, so most people are probably satisfied with its completion, fans of the game, I should say. I felt that given this sting in the tail that we have here, this would have been better at a shorter running time. And I will make the same critique I've made before. What do I learn here that I haven't learned from all the higher end zombie storylines of the past decades, including The Walking Dead once again, to make that correlation? And yeah, honestly, I feel like this could have been a very tight film to get to this specific revelation. I'm not sure it held up for me over 10, nine, I should say, over nine episodes. It seemed like a long journey, although there were some great highlights to this story, some beautiful production design and some really strong episodes. And it seems like the episodes that I enjoyed the most were the ones that were expansions on storylines within the game itself, which is a little ironic because although I like those episodes the best, I will simultaneously say that the story streamlined to its core essence of Ellie and Joel on this cross-country trip and the sacrifices they make and this twist at the end would have been better served at a shorter running time, in my opinion. This is me immediately after seeing the episode, so maybe I do need to digest, to digest it a little bit more. And I will, by the way, because there will be a bonus episode on Wednesday where I'll be getting Celia's feedback on the episode. She's been liking this series much more than I have. I'm sure she'll be pretty enthused with this finale. Okay, so it is getting late now. And the Academy Awards have just wrapped up just minutes, minutes ago. So here is my reaction to most of these awards. And I do plan to catch up on, not the show, which is, I mean, this show, the Academy Awards, I mean, it's incredible how anybody can watch this four hours of this stuff. But thank God for social media, because now we could just see the highlights I did used to watch this years ago and never enjoyed it. I guess I just watched it because, you know, there was that suspense as to who had won and there was really no way to see it afterwards. Now it's kind of amazing to me that during the pandemic, there was this huge collapse in the ratings for the Academy Awards. And uh, people were just saying like this award show is over and maybe award shows in general are over and made a huge comeback last year, not to the levels where it had been previously, but much, but a pretty healthy rating last year. And it kind of surprises me that people still watch this stuff in real time because honestly, it's just such a, a long slog. But maybe it's just so people have something to tweet at in real time. Anyway, I will take advantage of all that real-time tweeting and will experience the awards retroactively through my newsfeed. So the first award of the night, I believe, was Best Animated Feature, Guillermo del, del Toro's Pinocchio. Now, I've said this before. I actually reviewed... Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley film from last year. And I did like that film. And I always feel like I like his films. He's extremely intellectual. I appreciate everything he's doing in his films. And somehow they just don't grab me. And here is yet another example. Guillermo, the, the Pinocchio film, his version of it, do not watch the Robert Zemeckis one that's available on Disney+. Plus. This one's on Netflix. Is impeccable. It is stunning. The design work here is absolutely stunning. And much more interestingly, way more interestingly, is that this story, Reinvented, takes the plot points of the original mythology and sets it in the time of Mussolini's fascist dictatorship in Italy. And here is a fairy tale about 
following the flock. The reward is in being subordinate of following orders and not asking questions. And by setting it in fascist Italy, Del Toro, who has multiple times now made films that are anti-fascist, subverts everything in the original Pinocchio fairy tale to turn it into a story about not following orders. So once again, intellectually and from a craft perspective, impeccable, super intelligent, and somehow still, I do not engage with the film at a visceral level, only at an intellectual level, only at an appreciation of its craft. And to be honest, given the other really strong nominees for animated uh, film this year, all of them very strong in such a com competitive field, I don't know if I would have given it to this film. Although it is a worthy film and extremely well made, beautifully, beautifully made. Then two fan favorites. I'm not going to complain about either one of these supporting uh, winners. Ki Hu Kwan, who I grew up with. I mean, he was in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. He was in Goonies, two films that I saw many times when I was a child. And then really just disappeared. I think he was on Head of the Class, another show that I watched at that time. And then really disappeared. Apparently, he's been working as a uh, stunt coordinator. But he's great in everything, everywhere, all at once, which I've raved about multiple times on this feed. So I won't do it again. But well earned. He gets to play different variations of this character. And just I just knew. I just knew he was going to win. There's no way this is the type of story that people cannot resist. This comeback from complete obscurity, although he's been successful in his own way, don't get me wrong, but you can imagine now him having a whole second career based on this win and well-deserved. And it's a great performance. That was followed up by Jamie Lee Curtis also winning Best Supporting Actress for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. At this point, I was pretty sure, even though I basically stopped watching or following the awards at this point, because I was recording the reaction that you just heard, but I pretty much knew that she had a very strong chance of winning this. She's had a very long career. This is a Lifetime Achievement Award, basically. Unfortunately, Angela Bassett, who in my book is the best thing about the Black Panther Wakanda Forever film, did not win. That also was a sentimental favorite, given that it is in many ways a Lifetime Achievement for her as well. She looks absolutely incredible, by the way, on the red carpet photos. It's unfortunate that she could not have that sentimental win now. I do think she'll have other opportunities. And I do hope we see her nominated sooner rather than later yet again. Best Foreign Film went to All Quiet on the Western Front. I had a short review of this in last week's episode. If you didn't hear that, do track it down. I ranked the 10 films nominated for Best Film from my favorite to least favorites. And I reviewed that there. And it is a very solid film. It also won for Best Original Score. I do like the score for this film, but I did feel in the context of the film, it kind of took me out of it. It has this very modern synth drone sound, which obviously is very anachronistic to a film that's set 100 years in the past, but definitely a memorable score. So I'm not going to complain about the actual music, more so how it's used in the film. And definitely deserved a win for Best Foreign Film. There are other candidates there that I think are even better, but obviously, since this was also nominated for, for the actual Best Film Award, we all knew it was going to win this anyway. Best of the Original Screenplay, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, yet again winning another major award here. And Best Adapted Screenplay, Women Talking, Sarah Polly, not nominated for Best Director here. Unfortunately, no women were nominated for Best Director, but she also wrote the screenplay to this very interesting film. It's a little stagey in its writing, but... 
very well written nonetheless. And I do hope you get a chance to watch that film. It is available for free if you have Amazon Prime to stream, I think only through tomorrow, by the way. This was a special for the Academy Awards. So if you're curious at catching that while you still can, if you have some time, do try to stream it before the end of tomorrow. Best Director went to the Daniels, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert for everything, everywhere, all at once. You're starting to see a pattern developing here. This was my favorite film of the year, probably. So I'm not going to complain about it. And I've reviewed it here multiple times on this feed. And just to speak to the direction, I have mentioned before that this film is not only the most directed film of the year, possibly, but I've described this experience of watching the film and having it pummel me and then kind of riding it out, feeling myself kind of succumbing to it, and then having this message delivered to me over the course of the film. And then hearing the directors actually talking about like, that is literally the experience they were trying to design. So the fact that I experienced exactly what this film was trying to achieve, a very complicated film to, to put together, obviously, if you've seen it, you'll appreciate that. And that it worked so well at what it was trying to do. Obviously, that's the directors at work, and they did exceptionally great work there. Best Actress, Michelle Yeoh for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And once again, another sentimental favorite, someone with who's had this incredible long career, still incredibly active, maybe more famous than she's ever been. She's in multiple Marvel films. She was in this hugely successful film this year for which she won this award. She was in the hugely successful Crazy Rich Asians and will be in the sequels as well. So more famous now than ever before. And here she is crowning her successful, hugely expansive and successful career, playing so many different parts all in one film. Really impressive. Maybe for my money, Kate Blanchett gave the better performance in Tar. Truly astonishing performance she gave there. But I feel like Yo's performance is a little more expansive. It requires more facets. And more importantly, is just the fact that this is a crowning achievement. Kate Blanchett has already won an Academy Award and has been nominated so many times, I am absolutely certain that she will have more awards, nominations, and wins in her future. <clears throat> but undoubtedly, a huge achievement, maybe the best performance of her career, but going up against this almost indomitable sentimental favorite here. Speaking of which, Brendan Fa Fraser in The Whale, a film that I honestly did not like. I did not like this film. There's, It's just so strange. At first, when I immediately finished watching the film, I felt that the script was the problem, that this heavy-handed symbolism and this clunky scenario was all in the script. And I would not be surprised at all if the stage play has almost all that dialogue in it. And then I heard a little bit about the backstory of how the writer wrote this story to deal dealing with his own weight issues. And all of a sudden, I suddenly flipped the switch in my mind saying that, Maybe this material would have worked if it hadn't been for this grotesque body horror version of the film that was made by Darren Aronofsky. And I say this as someone who is an apologist for Aronofsky in general. I love The Wrestler. I think it's an incredible film. And Black Swan, by the way, another one of these films that has a tendency to really delve into the grotesque. But discovering the grotesque in these athletic bodies versus really looking at this obese person in this really grotesque way did not add to the film. And, and I, once again, say this as someone who even thinks that Mother is a film that I will defend. I really think that that's an interesting film. So maybe I'll change my mind on this one too at some point in the future. But boy, I did not like this film watching it. But all that being said, 
Brendan Fraser does give a very committed performance, a very difficult performance physically, being under all this prosthetics and still having this real humanity shine through. But it really is working against what the director is doing, which is the problem I have with the film, I think. Audiences really embrace this film, which is strange. This is a very difficult film to watch, just the way it views its subjects, and yet audiences seem to embrace it. Very strange to me. But maybe it's just because of the strength of Fraser's performance, and he does deserve recognition, I think, for that. And of course, Best Picture, everything, everywhere, all at once. Not a surprise. It pretty much swept all night long. By the way, the studio, A24, between everything, every, everywhere, all at once, and The Whale, swept all the main awards the first time a studio has done that. Some other technical awards, Avatar The Way of Water won Best Special Effects, duh. <laughs> uh, Black pa Panther Wakanda Forever won Best Costume Designer. This is the second time this costume designer's won. Uh, excellent work, by the way. My favorite thing, I think, about the Black Panther films is the costume and set design and just the technology, the way it's designed, really beautifully uh, rendered and definitely deserves those awards. The Whale won Best Makeup Effects, definitely the most makeup effects. Best Cinematography and Best Production Design both went to All Quiet on the Western Front. That film definitely won a surprisingly large number of the technical awards as well as Best Foreign Film. So big night for them as well. Best Sound to Top Gun Maverick. Hard to complain about that as well, given the sound design really has a huge impact on the experience of watching that film, especially in the movie theater. So that's a rundown of my reaction to the awards. I have not seen all the jokes and if there were anything scandalous happen or any flubs or from what I'm seeing on social media, there are no outrages this year. Maybe I'll have my reactions to some of these with Celia as well. And once again, I will be having a bonus episode, which I will publish probably on Wednesday, where we discuss maybe the Academy Awards, definitely the finale of The Last of Us, probably Daisy Jones, almost certainly the Scream sequel, the most recent one, and also talking about just a bunch of new interesting shows that'll be premiering this very week. So stay tuned for that on Wednesday. And of course, if you're watching Your Honor, another finale this week, Your Honor. Oh, and Ted Lasso's coming back. I will somehow fit that in somewhere along the way as well. All right. So until Wednesday, enjoy your week and I'll talk to you soon.